Hello and welcome to another episode of Children's University Live, a podcast series from Children's University, the charity that encourages, tracks and celebrates young people's participation in learning beyond the classroom. Now, if you're new to Children's University, do check out childrensuniversity.co.uk for more information about how we help over 100,000 children each year to develop essential skills, competence and character through informal learning. I'm Vic Elizabeth Turnbull, your Children's University Live presenter. And here at Children's University, our vision is a world where every child has equal opportunity to unlock their full potential through learning beyond the classroom. Every day at Children's University, we come across so many people who do great work in the worlds of education, social mobility and equality. So we want to highlight, discuss and share with you the context that we're all working in. Our podcast is a space to open up conversations about what matters to us all with the people that are making that difference. So to tell you more about this episode, I'm actually going to hand over to Helen O'Donnell, Children's University CEO. Hello, Helen O'Donnell here. And on this episode of Children's University Live, you'll hear from Mia, Katie and Keeley, the co-founders of Cheshire Voices for Equality Association. Now, I wanted to personally introduce this episode because I live in a local authority area where close to 97% of the population is white, which is 10% higher than the national average. And we're facing an issue termed rural racism. And this issue came to light after this group of young activists chose to celebrate Black Lives as part of the Black Lives Matter campaign, surrounded by white people. My daughter introduced me to the Black Lives Matter Sandbach group, which Mia, Katie and Keely formed, as she attended school with two of the founders. Despite suffering threats and being subjected to intimidation, both on social media and to their faces, Katie, Keely and Mia have continued to grow the peaceful movement locally and have now set up Cheshire Voices for Equality Association. They've opened up a much needed local conversation around race and racism. And in this podcast, they chat to each other about their experiences, how they got involved in social action, their thoughts on anti-racist education and their hopes for the future. So, okay, on with the episode. I'll let the girls take it from here. And you'll hear from me again in a short while when I come back to ask Katie, Keely and Mia some burning questions. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie and I'm here with Keely and Mia. And we are the co-founders of um, Black Lives Matter Sandbach and Cheshire Voices for Equality Association. We're activists, we're anti-racist, anti-racism activists, and we sort of got started on our various projects um, with a series of small but then rapidly growing protests in the town we grew up in, um, in rural Cheshire, well, semi-rural Cheshire. We just want to say thank you for inviting us today. We're really pleased to have this opportunity to talk about our experiences and talk about some things we'd like to see in, in the education sphere. 
Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how we got involved in activism and then we'll talk a bit about our experiences of racism and other um, injustices and inequalities um, and then talk a little bit about what we want to see in the future. So we hope you enjoy it. So first, how did we all get involved? Keely, do you want to start? So I got involved with Black Lives Matter and anti-racism work over the summer when you, Katie, had decided to sit in Sandbatch Town Centre with your Black Lives Matter placard. So Sandbatch is a very predominantly white area, according to the last census. Um, there's 29 black people out of a population of 18,000. And I, being a mixed race black woman myself, had been wanting to do more. But with lockdown and the pandemic and knowing how the people can be in Sandbatch, I was afraid to do much. So I was really happy when I saw on Facebook that Katie was there with her friends um, and I decided to go and join you. And then I'm a student midwife and I've been learning about the um, different health inequalities, like racial inequalities within healthcare and the maternity um, care. And I've learned that black women in the UK are five times more likely to die than white women in the UK in childbirth, uh, pregnancy and in the postnatal period. And they're also more likely to have their child pass away in the first year of life. And black neonatal deaths are also on the rise. So along with everything else, my experiences um, in Sandbatch, that's really pushed me even further into anti-racism work. So yeah, that's why I'm here. Oh, thanks for that. What about you, Mia? So, like Keely, I saw um, Katie with her placard. I saw it on Katie's Instagram because we went to school together and college together. So, I saw that first of all and was so proud and just so... It's just so nice to see that it's not just happening in like cities that when I was at uni I saw uh, protests happening but to come home and see that was just like wow um, and I saw the massive negative backlash um, on some of the local Facebook pages so that really shook me um, and that's when I knew that I had to step up as a white woman because the one thing about Lives Matter movement I think has taught everyone is that white people need to step up and it's certainly time now. I'm a third year sociology student ever since doing, starting sociology really that's when I started learning about race and started learning about my privilege as a white woman. And I think seeing how feminism is so white, that's when I first woke up to my kind of place in the world. Because I thought some white women are so blind to how they treat black women. And the whole Me Too movement, as amazing as it was, I thought it could have been a lot more um, inclusive. The one thing about the Black Lives Matter movement as well, as well as waking white people up, is that I think it's a really inclusive movement that we can all get involved in. Oh, thank you. Thanks for sharing. So I'm Katie and I got involved, I guess, like informally around sort of 2016-ish when I sort of saw what was going on on social media, but I was still very much in like a different kind of bubble in high school and, and things hadn't 
really transferred to sort of Sandbatch. Like people didn't really sort of know what was going on necessarily. It sort of felt very separate to like our lived experiences. Um, and then fast forward to this year, over the coronavirus pandemic, it's been like a massive time for social change. You know, Black Lives Matter has had such a massive um, amount of attention and support. It's such a crucial time, really, because coronavirus has just highlighted inequalities that were already there. So I got involved specifically this year when I decided on the 4th of July, because I was seeing sort of American Instagram pages and Twitter um, they were sort of saying they're going to do a blackout and not celebrate the 4th of July and I thought what can I do to kind of like join in because up until that point I'd been signing petitions and trying to share things on my social media and doing kind of more online activism um, but I hadn't gone to any big protests and I thought well if we stand with a sign it might make one person in Sandbatch think about Black Lives Matter that might not have thought about it that day and to be honest I'm not sure how many more I would have done if it weren't for the response because the response on the day was just horrendous we were sort of um, shouted at quite a lot by a lot of people and a lot of people were saying you know white lives matter all lives matter we had just a lot of people telling us we were wrong one man told us segregation was a good thing we had a lot of people just basically trying to come up and have a go at us. Um, and that really like propelled me further into thinking about doing even more because it really showed that although the instances of racism I'd experienced growing up were quite spread out, the sheer volume of people who must hold quite problematic racist views in the town we grew up in is actually quite a large number. And then things kicked up a notch much more and we got much more organised and Keely and Mia got involved and then more people got involved. So we sort of want to talk a little bit about our experiences as well as part of this podcast. So we've sort of touched on why we support Black Lives Matter and a lot of things that kind of feed into why we've chosen to do what we we're doing. But what I think a lot of people can overlook is, is that that for me and Kiwi specifically, this has been like our entire lives. Growing up, how did sort of racism and other injustices as well affect us and our thinking? Um, so I was the only kid of colour in my primary school. And I think the first, my first encounter of racism was probably when I was about six, seven. And I remember someone calling me the P word and a blackie and they kept saying it for like the whole afternoon and people were catching on. And I remember not really, I wasn't that bothered at the time. I don't know why. I don't think I knew what the P word was referring to. And I don't think I really knew what they were referring to with blackie either. My skin's brown and I was obviously young. Um, but I went home and spoke about it with my mum and that was like the kind of first conversation I'd had with my mum about how people can discriminate by, like, due to how you look. Um, and I just remember thinking, that's when I remember thinking my mum's white. I've, I've never had contact with the black side of my family. So that's when I really started to start asking questions and realise that I was different. I didn't realise really that I was different until people started calling me names at school. Um, and one of the biggest 
um, and like situations that I've found myself in when I was young at primary school again, probably six, seven, so young, was when I went to my best friend's house for a sleepover, which we did all the time. And then they were um, farmers, lived very rural in Cheshire. They lived in a big barn conversion, had loads of land, and they always had quite a lot of family round. And I remember I'd stayed the night and then my mum had come to pick me up in the afternoon and they had quite a few family round who I'd never met. Um, and I remember my mum picking me up. She'd come into the living room. She'd had a chat with my friend's mum, who she was friendly with. And then my friend's uncle, said in front of me and in front of everyone else, asked my mum if I was adopted, obviously because my mum's white and because I'm brown. Um, that caused a whole lot of issues for my mum because for the next few years I was questioning if she was lying about me not being adopted. So I was questioning my mum, my family, my life, and all at the age of six or seven is quite a lot because of one silly person's comment out of ignorance. So in terms of how that influenced my thinking then, as I say, that really started me questioning my life, um, my identity. I was, I was probably in a bit of an identity crisis at such a young age, questioning my family, you know. And I think the questions about the other side of my family, my black side, that for various reasons I've never been involved with, I think that came quite early on for my mum because of other people's ignorance. And I don't think people realise, and, and for an adult man, that really affected my life and my mum's for a few years. So, and how just a few, how, however many words he said in, a, in just a few seconds can have such a big influence, especially on a child. Um, and then now when I look back, there's been, that's just two out of many um, incidents, but when I think about how it influenced my thinking now, I think part of my motivation to do all of this anti-racism work is for the children now, the black and brown children who are growing up in Sandbach now and other rural areas and their children and their children and their children because it's not a nice experience at all. So yeah that's what pushes me forward really and, and as well for my for my son I've got a mixed race little boy who is white assumed because he's got light skin he's got blonde hair he's got blue eyes because I a mixed race person had a baby with a white man and I know that while questions have happened already people assume that he's not mine I remember taking him to the hospital to see a paediatrician um when he was a few months old and the paediatrician consultant asked me where his mum was. So again, that was like the start of that and he was only probably a month or two old. So I know I've got loads of awkward questions like that coming when he's old enough to understand too. So it'd be quite nice to make sure or try and do our best to make sure that people have more knowledge about these things and don't, you know, affect little innocent kids lives in that way because I don't think they realize the power behind the words and how it can affect people yeah definitely so I'm sure some parents and also like teachers are going to be listening yeah so are there things that you're going to do or um things that you're already doing to help um your child navigate that 
And do you think, is, is there anything you want to really see change sort of in the way people are sort of um, teaching their children now? Are, are there specific things? In terms of how I'm going to teach Jackson to navigate through things like that, I'll be honest, I don't know yet. He's only three. What I've been doing so far is just I'm embracing my Jamaican roots with him. And we talk about that. He knows that he's, well, it, it's hard. And I'm not going to lie, it does stress me out living in such a predominantly white area and how I'm going to do it because I'm, you know, he's my only child. I've never done this before. And I don't really know what to say because I think it's, it's more confusing for, like, compared me, me as a mixed race child growing up in Sandbach with brown skin and my son, a mixed race child growing up in Sandbach with white skin is two very different things. Definitely. So I worry about him being at school amongst friends who he's trying to fit in with, knowing that he's mixed race and sitting there with his friends and hearing racism and not knowing how to react to that. Does he want to be assertive and stand up against racism and maybe lose friends? Or will he be someone who, you know, doesn't really want to say because he doesn't want to affect friendships, things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't really know how I'm, we're just embracing our roots all the time with food, with music. He's got the Jamaican flag in his room, books. Um, I tell him stories, but it, it's, it's difficult because we don't have that connection with the black side of my family. So it's all on me, which I feel is quite a lot of pressure. And at school, you know, if we were in Manchester City Centre or if we were in London, I think things would be a lot different and they could take some of that pressure off of me somewhat because one, their staff and pupils will be multicultural and diverse. Um, and I think some of the things they learn in schools in cities is a lot different to what they learn in places like Cheshire because oh, yeah. oh yeah yeah I definitely yeah. Found yeah. Yeah. yeah and they yeah, don't need to they don't need to cover racism as much here because they don't realize that it's going on because there's hardly any people of color here and whiteness and is so normative in these rural yeah. spaces whiteness mm -hmm. does take the forefront and I know myself I've never had to think about race or racism and it was only until sociology opened my eyes and mm -hmm. you obviously don't learn about it in high school and exactly. yeah it's so damaging for it must be so damaging for to be a person of color a black person exactly. growing up in a what like being the only black and brown face in the school like yeah you know, you know? i think and it's hard because that even comes with problems in itself like obviously i'm saying jackson being light-skinned and people assuming that his white comes with his its own problems but any mixed race person, whatever colour they are, if people know that you're mixed race or you're black or you're, you know, whatever, when they do learn about things like slavery and all of the just expected things that they kind of have to do, have to teach, everyone then turns around and looks at the kid. That's also a problem. Because I, do you remember that, Katie? Oh yeah, yeah, quite quite a lot really, um, and I was quite mouthy as a youngster, 
So I had no qualms about sort of chatting back, getting quite assertive. And then that came with its own label as well. But um, Mia, and, and actually you just did also touch on it as well, Keely. I just, I thought that's a good way we could start talking a little bit about how um, racism isn't confined to one subject area. So something that, um, something that I experienced and I think Mia, you, you touched on it and Keely certainly from when you went to school as well was like compartmentalizing racism or injustices. So it's this idea that it's either a historic event. So we're gonna learn about slavery as a historic phenomenon, but we don't get told about like the ramifications today. For example, the biggest pub in our town is built on the money from slavery, but we weren't taught that when we were taught about slavery. Same things with like the Colston statue, you know, how many people actually knew about that? I certainly didn't before they went to take it down. <clears throat> and then going further and thinking about, well, is this talked about in STEM? Is it talked about in maths? Is it talked about in um, any kind of, you know, PE, anything like that? Like we, we sort of compartmentalize it into okay let's look at famous sporting women but have we looked at you know like the scandals around football and have we looked at you know a bit basically bringing in these ideas that social justice is in every subject in every aspect of school completely um and specifically racism as well and it shouldn't be just confined to humanities and exactly. social sciences for those teachers to carry all that weight especially in like predominantly white areas exactly it's, certainly me and katie noticed it's a few teachers that just carry it for the whole school and we certainly need to be thinking about how our schools can do better and how it can it, like you said how it's not just compartmentalised to certain parts of well not even the curriculum but you know what I mean certain subjects exactly. or certain exactly. or just do one PSHE lesson on it because that needs to take the box you know it should be ingrained I remember the only time I learned about we definitely didn't learn about racism ever we didn't learn about any black history apart from you guessed it slavery and we learned about that in religious education yeah i don't understand that um but i remember we watched roots and i've never watched it since it was disturbing because we were about 14 and i think more disturbing to me because I was the only black kid in the room and everyone was staring at me and making a thing about it. And I remember someone putting their hands up saying, can Keely be excused? And it was just so embarrassing and awkward to a point where I said to my mum, like, we're watching Roots in this class. I feel awkward about it. Can you write a letter to excuse me? Cause I don't, I'm embarrassed. I want to learn about it, but not like with these people because I'm just embarrassed cause people are just turning it like all onto me and asking me questions and stuff that I didn't know. So I found it awkward. It was kind of a catch 22 cause I was like, we need to be learning about these things. Everyone here needs to be learning about these things. But at the same time, I don't want to because I'm embarrassed. So I feel like something needs to Definitely. be in place yeah. to make that easier on the kids of colour who are in the room. I think you've, and that, that I think 
um, definitely leads on to ideas around like um, emotional labour, which we've, we've heard in the context of kind of um, women is is when that term um, sort of sort of came in, into use a bit more. But um, I definitely think that at the minute, especially in a time of like quite dramatic social change around ideas in terms of race, a lot of the labour, a lot of the work is is sort of taken on by people who fit into the groups that the racism is concerned about. So I think as well, this is this is something that both um, Keely and Mia think a lot about and, and deal with a lot as well, actually, is how do, you know, allies, so non-black people as allies, what can we do to alleviate the work without... Um, without being saviors, without taking on um, work that doesn't need to be done or the kind of work that used to be done. So like the box ticking, like we've already talked about, how can we move towards a place where people are um, actively and productively, I think is, is probably the right word, being inclusive and being anti-racist. Do you have like suggestions I think could be quite helpful for people? Hmm, well, I think it's, you've got to ask yourself why, as a white person, why am I doing this? Like, what's your intentions? What's your motivations? Exactly. If it's, obviously, there's a thing about performative activism or performative allyship, and it's, quite it's really uncomfortable to see i think we've all seen it mm-hmm. where white people i think they totally unintentionally often take up the space and kind of say what can i do what should i be doing and it's even draining as a white woman to watch so i can't mm-hmm. imagine how it is for black and you know people call her to be constantly asked what can I do so stop asking what you can do for a start and start being active and looking at ways you can help so look at petitions write to your MP that's the least you can do to be honest like read books like so the first book I read was uh, White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo and she talks about the defensiveness and the uh, how do I like defensiveness and discomfort white people face in this talking about race talking about racism talking about our privilege and we've seen it a lot in Sandbach because it's a rural town nobody wants to admit that you know rural spaces are havens of racism like just like everywhere else has its racism problem Mm -hmm. um so my advice would be to read that book first of all because you need to assess your own reactions when people like uh, put you with a put you in a situation where there is a problem we can't be defensive about it we've got to be uh, face up to it and do what we can and just not be defensive and yeah that that's brilliant Keely so Mia talked a little bit about performative um like activism and performative anti-racism um and I think for some people it's 
they don't understand like the impact that has on the people that you're supposedly quote unquote helping. So from your perspective, how does performative activism sort of make you feel and, and why does it make you feel that way? It just, it's annoying, isn't it? So <laughs> I remember when, I remember back in the summer, whenever it was, when everyone posted a little black square on their Instagram, blackout Tuesday or whatever it was. And it's like, I'm taking the time to read and put in the work. I'm not going to be posting on my social media today. And it all caught on and everyone jumped on the bandwagon and did the same thing. And I remember on the day thinking, okay, if you're all doing that, that's really cool. Um, But, you know, these people who were doing that, supposedly, are people who you've never heard anything from or seen anything on their social media again since about what they've learned or standing up to racism or, or any shares of resources. You know, it's just performative and it's people just doing it for clout. And it's offensive because why are you doing that? You're either going to do it or you're not. If you're not, then don't bother pretending that you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think as well, this links with, obviously with me being a student midwife, we all have um, the chance to go on elective placements. So anywhere in the world, you can go and do an elective placement to get some um, experience in certain fields of midwifery. And a lot of people uh, opt to spend a lot of money um, with certain companies to pay those companies to get them out there to um, Tanzania, uh, loads of different places in Africa, Uganda, you know, going to the most stereotypical, poor, poverty-stricken places, help with midwifery there, and then come home and work in Britain why are you doing that if you're not going to go fair enough if it's somebody who wants to go out and work there for the long term in Uganda then go and get experience there on your elective placement but if you're not going to do that and you're going to come and work for the NHS at Leighton Hospital in Crewe why are you going to Uganda to work with all of these women who have AIDS who have children with AIDS who are dying in childbirth and you're taking photos and putting it on your Facebook and telling the world about your story, you're going to come and work in a little small town hospital. That's performative and it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. And it definitely touches on problems that are that are involved in, in sort of mission trips as well, which is sort of an issue we, we don't necessarily... Um, come across quite overtly in, in Sandbach um, and, and is sort of more related to kind of like the general climate sort of around religion in, in Britain, but certainly like the, the problematic nature of perpetuating Africa as this monolithic place that has one, you know, vibe, put it for want of a better word, when in reality it is, it's, huge it is so big and so diverse and so you know varying in its conditions that it's just it is just harmful to perpetuate this kind of one view of africa that people in in britain seem to seem to have um but yeah and and from my perspective on performance of activism i think a lot of 
activism that is well-intentioned will have performative elements anyway. That's the nature of social media, I think. I mean, it's the nature of sort of changing attitudes because on one hand, we can't just have people doing one thing and then cracking on with their life as normal. That's not what it's about. But if one person posts one more Black Lives Matter post that they wouldn't have done otherwise, let's say, and their racist grandma sees it, that is one more person who will have thought about something that they, they wouldn't have thought about before. So performative activism is such a minefield because if you enact anything to do with anti-racism, there's going to be elements that, you know, have to balance, I guess. They have to balance the the weight of how much real action, how much tangible change can we do, like, on an individual level and how many, like, attitudes and sort of, like, opinions and, like, mindsets can we sort of push in a particular direction, say. And that, again, is, is its own is its own sort of issue. Um, so moving on a little bit, what do we want to see? So as sort of activists for Black Lives Matter in Britain, um, specifically about education, which is something all three of us are hugely passionate about, what do we want to see change? What do we want to see this academic year that may not have happened the last academic year? Um, well, throughout primary school, throughout high school, throughout college, I never learned about any black history apart from a few classes in RE with slavery that I spoke about earlier. I never learned about the real um, history, like um, colonialism and all of, all of that. The, the very, very important stuff which affects black people now, today, hundreds of years later. I learned about that two years ago when I was 30 on an access course at college for to get onto my midwifery degree. And I, obviously my mum had taught me that she'd, you know, encouraged me to look at things like that myself. And we did when I was growing up and I thank her for that. I definitely didn't know as much as what I thought through teaching myself and my mum teaching me as you as you learn in a classroom and it really opened my eyes massively so I think that all of that should be a standard taught in schools along with Henry VIII along with Jack the Ripper and agriculture and all of that I love history and I loved history at school I'm obsessed with the Tudors I, I love all of it the monarchy um, I, I watch films on that in my own time. I love it. I'm a history buff. So all of these people who quite often think that, oh, BLM, they're wanting to come in and brainwash our children and, you know, teach this, this and that in history and wipe British history. Black history is British history. Let's just get that clear. And we're not wanting to overtake everything else. No way. We just want to add to the curriculum, important yeah. aspects of history that affect people today? I would like um, anti-racism to just become n not something we have to shout about. It mm -hmm. needs to be something that just becomes who we are, what we do, how we live our lives. And um, in education, 
we need to all just try and check our own biases like teachers academics and I think intersectionality is the key Mm -hmm. to this and I think everyone needs to see the world through an intersectional lens which means we think about who are privileged so me as a white woman I need to know that I'm privileged in the way that I take up space and I um, you know, in the social hierarchy, I am above mixed race women, black women, and I need to be aware of that and make sure that I am in, I am trying my best to check my biases all the time. So, in a way, it's on us as individuals, but also I'd like to see universities, schools just integrate anti-racism and intersectionality in the way they are so that it's not something that is you know being forced and it's not something we have to shout about for it to become to be done yeah it shouldn't be this hard it no, should it not be this hard it should be the norm no, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't at all i think i think what I want to see is an attitude that's just completely orientated towards continuous change um, and not in a way that's only about like personal and like professional development. I think at the moment there's, there's a bit of an issue in the way, you know, diversity and inclusion is kind of branded almost. It's sort of packaged for schools as this thing that makes the school better. And on one hand, it absolutely does. And that's why it should be done, because it makes the school better. But it's about understanding that the kinds of things, i.e. teaching this stuff in history and um, making sure that the clubs are inclusive, that after-school clubs are inclusive, you know, um, that continuous training is, is offered. Those kinds of things are moral obligations. They're not things to help people develop in themselves. People, whether or not you think, you know, whether or not people think this makes them a better person should not necessarily, in my view, be a deciding factor in whether or not you do it this kind of work should just get done because it should get done. Um, And I also think racism logically does not make sense. So sexism logically does not make sense. And I think if people are taught like more critical thinking, I'm going to sound biased now because, you know, I love like religious studies and I love studying ethics and philosophy but I do think that these subjects add such a rich value to how people approach learning so when people read or when people are taught things in a classroom for example when sat in a history classroom I was never taught in high school to necessarily question who said that what race were they you know what gender were they what were their political views because those things do play into how history is written and how it's then subsequently taught. So those are kind of the two things I would definitely want to see this coming year. I want to see people thinking more deeply about, okay, we know that in history there was racism and we know that like racism affects today, but I kind of want to see more questioning of everything, not just the kind of traditional, um, the traditional kind of things people question in classrooms, I think you know racism issues run so exactly. deep 
and it's very very complex and I think Mm -hmm. a good way of teaching especially younger well not younger but primary school maybe later primary school age children is to teach them about how racism is a spectrum Mm -hmm. and about how you can be on one side overtly racist you know throwing out the racial slurs all day every day And then on the other end, there's anti-racist putting in the work to be an ally. And then somewhere, people are usually somewhere in the middle. They're not overtly racist, so they think they're not racist, but they're not knowledgeable. Yeah, they're not, they don't understand how to be anti-racist. And for that reason, they contribute towards racism without knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a horrible, um, it's, it's a horrible balance almost because on one hand you need to see a problem to solve it but for a lot of people they're now seeing these quite terrible things um and it's unpleasant and that's exactly what Mia was talking about with with you know the kind of reactions from people being defensive and being shocked and being you know horrified and wanting to not deal with it but we don't have that option to not deal with it we we've had to deal with it we will continue to have to deal with it um hopefully for not much longer but um yeah that's that's definitely such an important part i've got lots of questions so i'm gonna jump in first of all just focusing on social action and activism and the reason i wanted to focus in on that is because children's university and the stuff we do is all about encouraging young people from a really young age so from the age of five to get involved in different activities beyond school and that does include social action Um, and we had an evaluation done a few years ago that revolved around social action at a time when I don't think that many schools um, really knew or understood what social action was so I'm keen to know from you all what sort of social action or activism you were able to get involved in at school? I can think of an example. I was just thinking in high school, there was like an Amnesty International club and like the focus was about um, like signing petitions, like writing to MPs and things. Um, and, and the teacher was brilliant. And she like organised us to Skype the girls that were like on the bus with Malala when she was shot. So things like that. Um, like experiences that you just couldn't have got without this like amazing energy from that one specific teacher, Miss Mail. And there was an LGBT rights club as well that Miss Mail did. I, I, I know her, I know who you mean. <laughs> I know that in secondary school when I was there we didn't have the opportunity to do anything like that at all unfortunately. It's a shame isn't it that and I think it's, it's really interesting actually that Katie and me are there, you mentioned the two teachers who obviously I know through my own daughter going to the same school as, as you that those teachers are religious studies teachers primarily aren't they and you talked in the podcast about conversations about race and racism and social action and activism always falling to the humanities side of education and always falling to, to certain teachers and that absolutely is a it is a really really good example of exactly what you were you were talking about yeah. isn't it that it's, it doesn't go across the curriculum it falls into certain certain pockets 
but but I, we're in a time now where like more, so many more people are like talking about it and doing stuff so like even though maybe we didn't do anything in primary school my sister's primary school age and like today this morning we made like a BLM sign for their window she just enjoyed coloring it in even like small it doesn't have to be like writing to MPs and things like even at like primary school age when like the understanding is like not maybe as you can't you can't introduce like really heavy topics it's still like amazing to yeah to, to get them doing things like I mm-hmm. think Keely you're brilliant at doing stuff like yeah. that I try my best but he's only three so there's only obviously so much you can understand but he's definitely my little activist he's been he's been to a few of our local protests he likes getting involved in making signs like the placards holds his fist up in the air and shouts black lives matter no justice no peace and all of that so yeah (laughs) I don't I'm not able to teach him too much obviously because he's so small but yeah he'll definitely be taught everything he needs to know but it's but it's interesting some of the things that you've said there because I was gonna I was gonna ask you know what what sort of things you would suggest in terms of us being able to encourage more young people to do social action and across a broader array of activities. So it's really interesting to hear the sort of things that you're doing with your very young son, Keely. Mm-hmm. And actually, that just makes me think. Gosh, it's, it it is so easy, isn't it? Actually, just to introduce really simple things. Yeah, exactly. Because even just the chant of Black Lives Matter. You know, it's got him asking me why as as he grows older and I, I can explain more and more. And the fact that he's learnt that from the age of three, you know, he's obviously going to be growing up with some awareness of that. There's a, a big sign in my Nana's house in Manchester, a big Black Lives Matter sign outside of primary school. I was actually quite surprised that it's been there probably for about a year or just under a year now and it's not been ruined he always stands outside when we walk to the park. He always stands in front of, of that sign and puts his fist in the air and shouts, no justice, no peace. Uh, <laughs> and he just sees the fists on the signs and knows what that means. So I, su- I suppose a lot of this is just about starting the conversation, isn't it? Yeah. And starting the conversation with with young people. And I, I know in the work that we do, you know, we've been having conversations for a long time about trying to bring things like conversations about careers and different different future work pathways down to a really young age because there is a way you can have those conversations it's just a, a case of starting that conversation isn't it and then letting kids do what they do naturally which of course is just start the questioning and start that why particularly at at the age of your son yeah but that's just a constant that you hear all the time isn't it <laughs> yeah definitely in terms of social action actually being meaningful and making a, a real tangible difference and change in society, that's challenging, isn't it? And it can be very challenging. It means it's not always a very neat or sanitised thing to do. Kindness and helping other people and, you know, lots of nice, heartwarming, lovely things, but then... On the other hand, it also takes the form of quite difficult, edgy things. And the work that you do and the reaction that you've had to that absolutely highlights that, you know, it's not always nice and sanitised and it is going to be problematic and it is going to be challenging and people are going to find it confrontational. But what would you say to educators and teachers that might be wary of getting involved in movements and activism like Black Lives Matter because of 
the the kind of threats of the not so nice stuff that might go alongside it. There's a stigma attached to Black Lives Matter, that statement now, when really if you strip away all of that taboo, which has just been created by people, the statement Black Lives Matter is true. Well, it needs to be true. I don't see what the problem is, but I think there's ways of getting round, you know, it doesn't need to be taught in terms of Black Lives Matter. It's such a massive, complex topic. That statement could be, you know, taken out of it if needs be. But at the end of the day, it's a statement that needs to be shouted from the rooftops, in my opinion. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I'd say on an, on an individual level, like you do have to kind of embrace the discomfort of talking about race because... Mm-hmm. I think it takes individual work, especially white teachers, because I'm pretty sure all of us had, didn't even have a black teacher. So it's got to the point now where, like, you know, white teachers have to unfortunately like embrace that discomfort and just mm-hmm. find ways to implement it into their like lessons in a really like compassionate way that's going to be inclusive of all the students. You touched there, Mia, on, um, you know, the fact that lots of young people and, you know, I'm a hell of a lot older than all of you. (laughs) You know, I didn't have black teachers at school. I didn't have Asian teachers at school. And I wanted to know whether you felt you had role models in school and also what would have made your experiences of school feel more inclusive. So for me, there wasn't any representation at all, all through all of my education so primary school secondary school college university and I'm even doing another degree now and it's still exactly the same I've never ever ever had a black or Asian teacher and then in primary school you know I was the only black kid in in my whole school at primary school so I didn't really have a role model in terms of somebody who looked like me my my role models were within like family friends I mean, there were, was people that I looked up to, but I definitely didn't have the experience of, you know, representation within my education at all. It, it's, it, that's almost quite a confusing question, because on one hand, I think like my like orientation towards social issues and politically is probably more influenced by my teachers than I might have like previously given like conscious credit to. Like when I think back, I think, oh, actually in the humanities again I can only speak from like the background of like pretty much my A-levels because that was like when like at least politically I was a bit more aware and certainly it was because of the nature of what I was learning so you can't really talk about psychology without bringing in you know ideas about colonialism imperialism racism classism economic issues like political structures like they all affect people's psychology and if you don't teach that that's very archaic like that 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 would be impossible to even think of it at the minute so on one hand and you know in terms of English as well English literature my English teacher was very good and so were obviously the religious studies teachers and as well my experience at the boys school going to college there the teachers I, I came into contact with again could, could have been luck could have been the climate of the school quite progressive but again they were all white I would say as well growing up like mixed race in white spaces mm. there's like an othering and also like homogenization like there's like both simultaneously so on one hand I was very much like sometimes I did feel like an outsider but on the other hand like I have been socialized from 
extremely like white environment so I guess to some degree my religious studies teachers were my idols um, and I mean I, stu- I went on to study that so I think it would be it would be wrong to not credit them as my idols but they but but at the same time there was no representation of someone who looked like me doing the things they did mm. I would probably just say my role models were my parents because mixed race relationship like I'm a mixed race person like it their work ethic their political values like I've kind of just taken no I'd say that as well I was brought up by just my mom so and she's why I'm mixed race my, my dad was black so my mom was always definitely my role model I'd say for me it's the same as Katie with it'd be wrong not to credit my sociology teachers because I am where I am today because I've like fell in love with sociology literally at a level so they kind of opened my eyes to a completely new way of looking at the world um but again it is just like championing certain teachers in the education system unfortunately like it's not embedded certain teachers kind of allowed us that space to like find that in ourselves do you think there there needs to be changes to the curriculum the reason I ask is partly because my daughter's studying sociology as well. And, and you know, I know we've had the conversation and she said all children should have to do sociology as part of the curriculum in, in the secondary school because it gives you, you know, that critical thinking and, you know, and, and that ability to debate and question and, and, you know, and have a really good understanding of, of the world around you. But then obviously I'm aware that there's been moves to to change the curriculum and I was really frustrated to read today that Amanda Spielman who's the head of Ofsted whatever her correct title is has has, you know sort of said well shouldn't be changing the curriculum um, according to these one-off issues that come up which just really really frustrated me and yet at the same time she was quoted as saying the curriculum's there to serve many purposes one of which is to make children feel represented and actually, children obviously aren't feeling represented. And, and then also they're not understanding the world around them and having that kind of tolerance and understanding that something like sociology brings. And, the, and yet there's so many conversations about, you know, how, how kids should be taught cross-curriculum. And, and yet, you know, you've, you've talked about it yourselves, about it kind of being pigeonholed into, into things. And it, it just really frustrates me. Yeah. It's just strange really strange that brings up like quite an important topic I think about like what we do and this this like polemic nature of what we do because however you want to think about it like ideologically like politically whatever you know there's like spectrums there's layers and what seems to be like the greatest opposition I guess or like the biggest kind of barrier we're facing isn't necessarily just inherent racism it is literally like a kind of stubborn like steadfast resistance to change racism is racism but it's almost like people don't care whether or not it works or like whether or not it makes sense and that's why I think humanities subjects and just like any subject that requires the kind of level of critical thinking that you're that you're describing allows people to like come into like a discussion about racism from a place that's not resistance to change and that's something massive that I don't know how we 
I think working around it, going through it, going under it, overcoming it is like such a massive kind of task. And that's all, that's what a lot of activists I think are working on at the minute because the kind of attitude that, you know, you're describing from Ofsted is, is the attitude that like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And we're the people that are saying it's not broken for you, but it is broken for these people. It's broken for this reason. It's broken because it just because we don't look at it that way or look at it as like a thing that's not working mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's working as best as it could work. Yeah, I think is like the way we're approaching it. Uh, absolutely. And it's 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 interesting because I know um, up until the education secretary changed again last year or the year before or whenever that was. There's been so many in recent history. I can't quite remember um, exactly when it was, but up, up until that point for the, for the previous few years, there'd been quite a concentration on character education, mm-hmm. grit and resilience and those sort those sorts of words. Mm-hmm. But it's been proven that those sorts of policies are really deeply racialized in terms of outcomes. So they really, really favour um, white kids, and that absolutely chimes with what you've just been with what you've just been saying. Um, and I don't, I don't know how we change that. I think the one thing that I really want to like stress is not that we we don't have like one. We even within the group, we do not have one outlook like on almost anything actually there's there's such a range of views like represented within the group and that's so important but what we all have in common is this idea that we are willing to revise our views I don't think the same as I thought five years ago that would be weird I was 15 like that would be strange Mm -hmm. but there's definitely this attitude like what you're describing of like people not wanting to personally develop in certain ways and it goes back to what we were saying about comfortability like it's quite I don't want to say easy but it's more straightforward to look at yourself and say I need to be more disciplined. I need to get up earlier. I need to be more organized. I need to um, strive to get as good a job as I can get. I need to focus on my career. All these things are quite like introspective, but quite straightforward, I would say, like in terms of the thinking, whereas it's much more difficult to question like your own biases. Like it, if why aren't more people taking implicit bias tests and going, oh my goodness, um, and, and wondering why they think the way they think well because if it's not if it's not a consideration in your mind in the first place then you're not going to go onto the internet and take an implicit bias test so it's, it's things like that definitely that that are really quite important to us could you just just for anybody listening who doesn't know what that is what those tests are can you just tell us a little bit about that so the tests like will show like different features and they'll either be like more Eurocentric or more South Asian, more East Asian or African or Caribbean. And the tests vary. And then it gives you word pairings that are like positive and negative. And you only have like, Mia might know better than me. I think it's like half a second or a second to like choose. And you have to click as fast as you can basically through faces and words. Um, and you're mentally like sorting them into good and bad or I think it's like happy and sad and you you receive like your innate bias and these tests aren't you know the be all and end all of like whether or not people are racist Mm -hmm. but they do indicate some slight effect I would say at least of like 
socialization like how far have you been exposed to other cultures and how has that affected like what you associate with like positive and negative words okay we've seen there's a lot of experiments on YouTube done with children we shared one in our group the other week which was just really so sad where black children and white children will have be given like the choice of choosing between a white doll or a black doll and they always choose white even if the child's mixed or black and it's yeah it's just socialization they just it's just white supremacy at the end of the day isn't it yeah it definitely indicates that blackness is associated with negativity like in all our language think about english lit classes you'd kind of say oh that's dark yeah and and if people are wondering like what you can do a lot of the things we do on facebook and on different social medias is to share the alternatives mm. so for example my sister does ballet and it was a massive deal for her when she found brown ballet shoes she was like running up to me she was like they do every shade look at this she was like do you think I'm this one or do you think I'm this like she loved it she was so excited and that kind of thing like finding those resources books dolls we've got um l- like angels in our house like now like little um ornaments and they're brown like a lot of the time my mum's looking for things that like look like my sister and not and and actually not just look like my sister but look like or just other races mm. and also children with um disabilities yeah. both Keely and, and Mia are, are really passionate about this like we're not just about treating like black people as like one group intersectionality is so important to what we do we don't just mean like the idea of that um, is like palatable to white people. We mean like the trans people, the not this, the um, non-binary people, queer people, like all the people who are, are still oppressed by like the systems that we are we're opposed to. And and giving children that representation right at the start just takes away the mm. rigidity. I think that some people that perhaps weren't socialized in the same way that often bring to conversations like not willing to move past the first hurdle Mm, mm. yeah and what I find as well is people like me a mixed race person with a child you'll always find that there's a black Santa on the tree or a painting of a black woman with uh, afro out you know in the living room you'll always find that and I think it needs to be done in all white households too because you always find that it's obvious it happens a lot less because then that's kind of white privilege because they're not faced with that issue it doesn't even cross their mind to do it whereas my son has got white skin blonde hair blue eyes I'm brown his dad's white so I'm obviously making sure that there's representation of me of him you know of his family because I kind of have to because he's going to grow up confused otherwise if we don't have those conversations whereas as I think children are growing white children are growing up with white privilege and don't need to think of these things whereas if we get it this representation in the home as well of other races from an early age they'll be growing up as that's that's being the norm and then it will get rid of that first hurdle it's even things like we were discussing in the group how you can't just go into your local card shop at Christmas greeting cards and and find cards with a black Santa or an Asian family it's always 
white characters, white people, white families, and we have to pay so much more money online to get cards that are diverse. And you'll find a lot of the time it's people of colour who are spending that money on cards, you know, so there's not a massive market for it. So maybe that's why they're not in the shops. Whereas if we were, everyone was a, as a collective making a conscious effort to even just do things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'd be really interesting for, you know, those people, teachers, students, university managers, anybody in our network listening to this. I think in terms of a, you know, a, a behavioural change, in terms of providing activities, extracurricular activities, you know, those kind of learning resources, et cetera. It's, it's actually just a really easy thing to do, isn't it? Just to make sure that those resources that are used are representative. Mm-hmm. And just, I suppose, having the guts to say, particularly, you know, if you are if you are a white person in an overly white environment and you're using those diverse resources, just to have the guts to tackle the awkward questions that might come at you from other white people. Definitely. It's just that's a small step, isn't it, that would make such a big, yeah, big difference. And talking about diverse resources, sorry, um, I'm going back a little bit, but as a mixed race child, I remember I'd go into shops or supermarkets with my mum and go to the toy aisle and literally be saying to my mum, "Why are there no baby dolls with brown skin? Why are they all?" Um, white and I remember my mum always had kind of difficulty explaining to me because obviously she didn't want to upset me but it happens now it's still like 30 years later it's still the same I went to Tesco the other week and every single doll was white and then sometimes I think well maybe it's better that my son you know has white skin and can pass the white because he's not faced with this problem and this sadness that toys and characters and dolls don't look like him or people on the telly or in films don't look like him so it's just really sad Mm -hmm. so I just think in schools definitely having um, a diverse set of dolls and books and things is really important absolutely I could talk to you girls all night well so I, I wanted I wanted to kind of focus on the future for you all you've developed what you're doing into um a constituted group so Cheshire Voices for Equality Association, is that the... Yeah, that's it. I just wanted to give you um, a window of opportunity to, to, I suppose, tell people why you've made that decision, why you've made that, that change and what your plans are going forward for that, for that organisation. Uh, so I think the decision behind it was we wanted to broaden our scope like across Cheshire, really. Um, because Sandbatch is small. We've networked with loads of other kind of like Black Lives Matter groups around the Northwest. And the kind of consensus was that we wanted to broaden our scope. There's no other kind of um, equality association or like anti-racist group in Cheshire that we know of. So we just thought we'd allow that space to kind of go for it really and get into education so that's a huge goal of ours go into schools or create um resources for schools I think I think one thing again like not I guess this is representative of like us as an organization but I think making people think that just wouldn't have thought about it before has been like our kind of niche and we've talked about it with other BLM groups and other like activist groups because in cities the kind of 
efficacy of a protest is in numbers, I'd say. So the media coverage comes because there's thousands of people because, you know, the crowd size, the experts, you know, these people who have been at it for years, like the organization of it, that is kind of what what their like driver is almost. Whereas ours, I think, is a kind of different niche, like doing the same work, but to kind of get the the person who's walking to Waitrose who may have never thought about BLM in their day now think what is that even if it's not positive straight away if they go home and they talk to their grandchildren or talk to their cleaner or talk to that if just whoever they're talking to in their circle it just means that information and just like these ideas will get spread to people who actually have this privilege to close their eyes yeah because we're already in the spaces I think that's one thing Keely um has talked about a lot like growing up in like these all white spaces it's a fine line to to walk for how much you bring up the kind of political and social issues that that directly affect your life because on one hand it's not the subject matter of all your like peers like it's not it's not a factor in their lives that they ever have to think about unless you're in that space and you you become this sole voice and I think what we want to do is kind of take the pressure off some of the people who maybe like us grew up and had to had to be the ones who said this isn't okay like you can't say that yeah that, those conversations that we had we want to really encourage that to happen on its own and take like the burden of labor off these individual people in their spaces we needed something more official in my view because Cheshire is such a predominantly white area obviously you know about the backlash that we've had just from doing peaceful protests so we needed something a bit more official that gave us more of an opportunity to scope out into other parts of Cheshire as well. Yeah, I think because a lot of the reaction we've got is negative. Like, we all know that it's not, you know, anything new. Um, But the key thing is we've got people in Sandbatch, which is such a small, like, small town. People often don't leave the town. Like, I think that's very common with rural towns in England like you know it's like that mentality of like racism doesn't exist here that's why protests happen in cities because it's not our problem and we've got people talking which as Katie said is absolutely key like like it's our thing of like creating these conversations and it's sparking and like I've had awkward conversations with my family members that are like why are you getting involved you don't need to get involved and I'm like well that's the point white people need to get involved like it's time now great well thank you very much I I wish you the best of luck with that and for giving your time because I'm aware of how generous you've all been with your with your time you've certainly opened my eyes to lots of things over the summer and um and it's been a pleasure to come along to some of your events um and I I would really appreciate you know staying in touch with you all in terms of you know what 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 we can do to support you in terms of resources and having conversations with schools that we work with yeah. and doing things in the extracurricular um space that would be that would be fantastic yeah we'd love to stay in touch so thank you thank you all oh thank you so much thank you so much thank you bye thanks for listening to this episode of the children's university live podcast 
further information about Children's University and the content featured in this episode can be found in the show notes. Do hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. This means that future episodes of Children's University Live will go straight into your feed of your favourite podcasts. And don't forget, whilst you're there, to rate and review. The soundtrack for this podcast is Sleet and Snow by My First Tooth and is courtesy of Alcapop Records. This podcast was produced and presented by me, Vic Elizabeth Turnbull, and is a Mike Media Production.